Imagine sitting down today with your teenage child to flip through some photo albums and simply sift through memories together. And imagine what it would be like if while flipping through those family photo albums and asking your child to recall certain memories or certain people from those pictures, if they could not do so. Imagine pointing out a picture of your child at an earlier age to them and asking the question, oh, who's that? Playfully and without assumption, only to have your child reply, how would I know? That is the story you're about to hear today with my guest, Stephanie, who discovered a few years ago that her teenage son, a gifted artist, athlete, and student who had been blind his entire life and had learned to navigate his world in a very unique way. Today's episode is not just about Stephanie's journey and her son's but about perspective and about finding our own vision in a way that we may have never anticipated or thought about before. This is a very important episode for anyone who has children, who knows someone with children, or who simply thinks that they know what it would actually be like to be blind. I want you to use today as an opportunity to really expand upon the experiences you've already had in this life and begin to open your heart and your mind to some of the other experiences going on around you. You will be stunned at how your life can change from these experiences, perspectives, and stories. I'm so honored to bring you today's story, and I hope you love it as much as I loved bringing it to you. You're listening to the Wildly Creative Women podcast, your daily dose of inspiration, creativity prompts, affirmation, rare stories of transformation and triumph you won't hear anywhere else. And yes, even mini audio courses filled with actionable advice from yours truly that you can't get anywhere else in order to help you find your voice and embrace your wildly creative heart as a woman and as a business owner. If you have ever dreamed of scaling your business, build on your creations without sacrificing your personal life or your sanity, you have definitely come to the right place, sister. If you've ever questioned if now is the time to scale up or perhaps even step away from it all, you're definitely in the right place. If you've ever suffered from burnout and you need some place to go for a daily dose of just peace and sisterhood and stories that are just for you, well, yes you're still in the right place. So grab a snack, something to take notes, hopefully grab a cozy corner where you can just relax and be with us and then get ready because now we're going to scale your passions with Serenity Sister and grow together through the Wildly Creative Women podcast. much for joining us today. I cannot tell you how much it means to me that you are willing to come here and share your story. Tell us a little bit about your journey with blindness and vision and creativity and how we came here to be today. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for having me on your show today. I can't tell you how grateful I am for this opportunity to be here and to talk about our story and to talk about cerebral slash cortical visual impairment or CVI, which was identified as the number one cause of visual impairment in the developed world more than 10 years ago and still doesn't have a diagnostic code. 
So to answer your question, in January of 2017, I discovered that my straight A honor student, genius artist, and water polo playing son, Sebastian, was almost completely blind and no one knew, not even Sebastian himself. He was 15 and just about to enroll in driver's ed. And we were devastated. I still get goosebumps every time I say that sentence. We were terrified for my son's safety and overwhelmed with guilt at not knowing that my own son was blind. And we just embarked on this journey to find answers. And we had quite a time. So I am actually a former music teacher and I actually made a major medical discovery in the field of visual neuroplasticity. My son, Sebastian, is the only person in the world known to process his vision verbally, which means that he quite literally sees with words, just like a bat sees with sound. And I know your listeners right now are going, what on earth does that mean? And we'll come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> We'll get there. We'll get there. But we made that discovery at home. Dr. Latfi Maribet, who is the director of the Shepin's Eye Research Institute. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. He's the director of the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity at the Shepin's Eye Research Institute. <laughs> associate scientist at Massachusetts Eye and Ear and associate professor of ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School. He published a paper on my son's use of verbal mediation to process his vision um, in collaboration with Dr. Barry Cran, who's the director of the New England Eye Low Vision Clinic at the Perkins School for the Blind in Neurobiologia. So I will definitely be putting a link to that paper in the show notes afterwards for everybody to see. So this is a true story. So um, we had quite a battle trying to get a diagnosis for my son um, because although my son's neuroplastic adaptation to his neurological visual impairment is unique, his actual condition is common and is very poorly understood. Cerebral slash cortical visual impairment, or what I'm going to call CVI, was indeed identified as the number one cause of visual impairment in the developed world more than 10 years ago. It does not have a diagnostic code, and there are tens of thousands of people here in the U.S. alone who have CVI, and they are struggling to gain access to diagnostic, educational, and habilitative services just like we did. So we had a horrific battle trying to get a diagnosis for a blind child who has always all his life appeared to be typically sighted. My son is almost completely blind and there's no way to tell from him academically, socially, physically that he is entirely almost completely blind. And it was just a devastating experience. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm going to speak for all of the ladies here and just, you know, wow. Um, <laughs> it's hard to even know where to begin, which is honestly, probably, I would guess pretty much where you were at when all of this started and when you made this discovery that, whoa, you know, something, something is not right here. <laughs> Yes, thank you. Because we were in January of 2017, and um, we were literally just looking at old photos. And um, I was one of those moms who made a baby book for my son, and I'm not crafty. And so then once I completed the baby book, then I thought I was done with all photo albums forever. And <laughs> Right. So anyway, I felt I had fulfilled what I needed to do. And um, so we had literally not looked at these photos in forever. And so my son and I were sitting on the sofa together looking at old photos for the first time in years and years and years. And I was, we were looking at his baby photos and he's an only child. And so at his baby pictures and I was narrating to him who was in the pictures because we have family all over the place and so there's a lot of people we don't see very often and so I was saying things like oh look there you are with your cousins from Canada that we haven't seen in seven years and oh look there you are with our neighbors from the house we used to live in when you were a baby that we haven't seen oh, since you were a baby you know those kinds of things and then we've been doing this for half an hour and my son's been looking at pictures of his own face for half an hour 
And all of a sudden, a really cute picture of him popped up on the screen. And he was now, we kind of graduated into the toddler preschool years, you know, and it was him at about three years old. And I just, it was such a cute picture. And I said, oh, look, who's that? And there was crickets. And finally, he just said, how would I know? And oh, wow. Back and my neck just stood up. I was like, that's you. How could you not know who you, you know, recognize yourself? And he just said, well, if you say so. And so I'm like, well, at that time in 2017, I had never heard of CVI, which is a brain-based vision impairment that is entirely different from ocular blindness and also more common in the U.S. and other developed nations. And so I had never heard of face blindness or prosopagnosia, which is the inability to recognize faces. And I didn't even know that it was possible for a human being to be face blind. So I was just completely baffled because my son is a very gifted artist who draws and paints faces and everything else that interests him with almost photographic realism when he wants to. So I had absolutely no idea that he had any disability of any kind. I was just stunned. And so here I am sitting on the sofa next to my son. He's not recognizing his own face after looking at his own face for half an hour. And so I started quizzing him on myself, my husband, other people that he should know in the pictures, 15 years younger, thinner, less gray hair, but still obviously us. And he was guessing. And so then I was like, there is something wrong. And I yeah, wasn't was not panic. I mean, did you go in as like, is my son having a stroke? <laughs> like what, what was going through your head? I was more like I had to solve the mystery. I wasn't afraid. I just thought that this was very unusual and I had to solve the mystery. And so that was, it was a later in the evening. So once everybody went to bed, I was on my phone, like searching because I'd never heard of this. Didn't know it was of even. <laughs> Back in 2017, there was so little information available or, I mean, I'm not super technological. So it took me several hours of searching and getting the right keywords in before I found prosopagnosia. And then I was like, ah, okay, this is a real thing. It's, and according to the in, incorrect information that I learned in 2017, I was incorrectly informed that it was very, very rare. Well, face blindness is not rare. In fact, the New York Times just had an article a few days ago, and it's one in 30 people has face blindness. <gasps> it's totally common. It's a totally common symptom of a totally common visual impairment. But in 2017, the information that I got was that it was very, very rare. And so I thought, okay, so he's got some very rare quirk. It's no big deal. But the very next day, we discovered that my son had taught himself to navigate by counting his steps and turns and had been navigating our own home, our tiny neighborhood, and our his extremely architecturally complex high school that way. And he'd been doing it ever since he was a toddler. He taught himself to navigate by counting his steps and turns and nobody knew he was doing that. And that's when I got scared because that's when I knew that he was not safe going out into the world. We had always considered ourselves just parents of an extremely gifted child. And he was absolutely planning on going off to college and living an independent life. And all of a sudden overnight, we didn't Boom. know my son live independently because that's not safe to be able to to not be able to to navigate but I mean he was relying on us basically to follow us around while he figured out his paths you know so that was terrifying and I immediately made an appointment with his neuropsychologist who had done a full neuropsych evaluation on him just a few like a month before for a completely unrelated concussion and I went into this appointment using the correct medical terminology to describe my son's symptoms. I said he had prosopagnosia, which is face blindness and topographical. Actually, I was using environmental agnosia to describe the fact that he couldn't recognize his surroundings and was navigating by counting his steps and turns. And this doctor said, I can't help you. And I don't know anyone who can. Good luck with that. And he dropped us. And <laughs> doctor after doctor after doctor and we 
traveled across the country looking for anyone who could diagnose my son and prescribe a couple of weeks of orientation and mobility training with a white cane so that he could learn to navigate without having to count his steps and turns. Because we knew my son needed to learn to navigate using technology, Google Maps on his phone, and my son's incredibly bright. We knew it would only take a few weeks. <laughs> and we were labeled crazy by the medical establishment and we were repeatedly verbally and emotionally abused. And I was actually physically threatened by a neuro-ophthalmologist we'd never even met. This man walked into the exam room screaming at me and screamed at me and put his fist in my face in front of my 15-year-old son saying, tell me how it's possible he can recognize words and letters and numbers and not faces. I said, it's all the same channels. Well, it's not all the same channels. So at this point, I think, I'm sure most of your listeners today, just like me back in 2017, have never heard of what CVI is. We CVI moms call it the common disability that no one's ever heard of. So I'm assuming there's a lot of people. <laughs> right. I've never heard of this. And it's actually more common than ocular blindness in developed nations. And so this is actually the number one cause of visual impairment. And it is just so un, unheard of. And so that's why I'm here is to raise awareness about it. So CVI is a brain-based vision impairment. It can happen to anybody at any age, and it can be caused by anything that causes brain damage, head trauma, stroke, um, drowning incidents, anything where there's lack of oxygen. And the reason that we have so many children who have CVI now is because our NICU care has increased exponentially in the last two decades. And so we have all of these teeny, tiny, extremely premature babies who didn't used to survive that are now surviving and they often have brain bleeds. And for that reason, they also often have epilepsy, they have cerebral palsy and wow. they have CVI. And so CVI is a brain-based vision impairment. It means that the eyes and the optic nerve are fine. So many people who have CVI also have ocular vision impairments as well, but you can totally have CVI and have normal acuity. In fact, it is common for people who have CVI to have normal acuity. And so my blind son passed every vision test every year because our optometric exams are decades out of date. He has normal acuity and he is able to read the eye chart. And so he passed every vision test every year, even though he has no ability to see faces, places, objects, biological forms. He has simultanagnosia. And so he is severely, severely visually impaired. And he passed every vision test every year because he can read. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so, um, Gosh, I'm trying, you know, I, I, I'm sure just like myself, our listeners, you know, their heads are swirling with questions <laughs> and all of this. There are the, no questions. The one in 30 is huge. Um, one in, one in 30 people. Yes. <laughs> out of the UK showing that one in 30 students in a regular ed classroom have symptoms of CVI, making CVI more prevalent than autism. So this is an enormous oh, cow. Right. This is an enormous public health crisis. And people who have CVI are routinely misdiagnosed with autism, with intellectual disabilities, with behavioral and emotional disabilities or, or, or um, yeah, problems. I don't know how you want to phrase that. And, well, and that's, that's really important. I mean, these misdiagnoses, ease, I guess, um, they're, com they're common across all kinds of different uh, prognosis, you know, prognoses and illnesses and different things. And, mm -hmm. and for anyone that might be listening, by the way, that found Stephanie's story about what she experienced with the doctors um, being threatening and terrible, she is so far from alone. <laughs> Myself, family members, a handful, a growing list of people I have known have been abused in various forms by doctors. And often some of the most violent reactions come from when they don't have the answer to something, <laughs> you know? 
that's just they were not used to that and they don't do well with it. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you brought that up because it isn't just our family because now that, you know, my no. son is diagnosed now. We have a research paper. In fact, Dr. Maribet from the Shepin's Eye Research Institute told me recently that my son, Sebastian, is the most researched individual for CVI to date. He, more research has been done on him than any other person. And, um, and you're right, the reason that the anger and, and everything comes out is because these doctors didn't get trained in CVI. There's no diagnostic code for it. So they get no training in it. It's completely out of their wheelhouse. And the sad thing is, once I understood some of the common symptoms of CVI, I was able to create quick and easy screening assessments for common symptoms of this common visual impairment in under a minute in my kitchen. And I'm a music teacher. So that means that my son could have been screened as a three-year-old if anybody had known how to do it. And it's just tragic that this is continues to go on. I know so many families whose children are didn't get diagnosed until teenage years, just like mine, or they were diagnosed and they did get a medical diagnosis and they still can't get access to educational supports in their schools because the teachers of the visually impaired, the vast majority of them have no training in CVI. And so they don't know how to, to address this in the educational setting. And so it's just, it's just terrible, the battles these families have to fight. So, yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. And okay, so and and like you said, um, we're seeing these misdiagnoses and stuff in probably what I'm guessing one of the more common ones we're probably going to see this day and age is autism. Would that be correct? Oh, it's very commonly misdiagnosed as autism because think about it, right? A common symptom of CVI is prosopagnosia or face blindness. And it's common right people who have face blindness to not want to make eye contact because it's so uncomfortable for them to look at face when they look at a face and it makes it's just a jumble of information that makes no sense whatsoever and so they avoid looking at faces very frequently and so they are very commonly misdiagnosed as having autism and because that's a there are overlapping symptoms and i will be totally honest it is perfectly many people can have autism and they can have CVI at the same time. Some people just have CVI and they're misdiagnosed with autism, but you can absolutely have both at the same time. So yes, yeah, it's, it's really rough. So I wanna talk a little bit more about what CVI actually is though. Yeah, let's do that. Let's unpack that and yeah. make sure that it's, we have a clear understanding and we actually are landing on awareness. <laughs> So as I was saying, CVI is a brain-based vision impairment and people who have it can absolutely also have ocular vision impairments at the same time, or they can have normal acuity like my son does. My son's eyes and his optic nerve are perfectly healthy. So he has normal acuity. But regardless, what happens is more than 40% of our brains are devoted to visual processing. And this past summer, I attended a lecture um, virtually with Dr. Arvind Channa and Professor Gordon Dutton, both CVI experts. And they were talking about how when light hits the back of the eye, the retina of the eye, it is transmitted into an electrical signal that goes through the optic nerve past the lateral geniculate nuclei to the back of the brain. And it has been measured, it takes a full tenth of a second between the time the light lands in the eye and it, the signal reaches the back of the brain before there is any conscious perception of sight. And the reason that's important for everybody to know is what it means is we do not see with our eyes. Our eyes are just light collectors and they create- This is so important. This is, okay, all right. So for any of my true crime junkies <laughs> right now, like this is actually something I learned um, from a, a doc series that was kind of uh, breaking apart um, some of our most common technologies that we use in terms of the criminal justice system today, uh, mm -hmm. DNA being one of them. And it was basically showing like how many wrong convictions per year and deaths and stuff were based on all of these technologies that we think are foolproof. One of them being video. 
and and they went into discussion about vision and all of this kind of stuff and yes literally your brain like <laughs> what you see is not factual <laughs> right like our vision is not factual and so often a lot of discrepancies that exist between two people looking at the very same thing or having witnessed to the same event they actually saw two very different things. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, every person's perception of their sight is actually unique. And we call that their functional vision. So my son's functional vision is very different from my functional vision. And so when we talk about neurotypical, it's kind of the average, what the average person can see, right? Neurotypical okay. functional vision. So when the light reaches the back of the brain, right, we are literally all conscious perception of sight happens in the brain, not in the eyes. And in the back of the brain, that's where like movement perception begins. And so there's actually people alive right now on the planet who had a stroke. And in fact, if you want to check out, there's a wonderful NPR article called The Blind Woman Who Saw Rain. So you can check this out. This woman lost, had a stroke and lost all conscious perception of sight. She lost the ability to perceive light, color, everything, except in the back of the brain, she retained the ability to see motion. So neurotypically sighted people can see motion. They can see when something is moving, right? And so when she had the stroke, she lost all ability to see, except she retained the ability to see that things were moving. And so she noticed when the rain came down on the windows, like she could see the motion of the rain. And then she noticed that she could see the motion of her daughter's ponytail as her daughter skipped ahead of her. So she, different parts of our brain are responsible for processing different things. And for the reader, the listeners out there, if you touch above your right ear, above and behind your right ear, that's where the fusiform, the right fusiform gyrus of your brain is. And that's where facial recognition takes place. So um, there are different areas of the brain involved in processing different things. The ability to recognize our surroundings is also processed very close to where facial recognition takes place. And so for people who have face blindness or prosopagnosia, they very often also have topographical or environmental agnosia because those things are processed so close together. If one area is damaged, the other one often is as well. But I'm gonna go back now and talk about the two different streams of visual processing. We have the dorsal stream and the ventral stream. So when the light comes through, the, the signals transferred to the back of the brain, the signal goes up through the back and top of the brain and also through the middle of the brain, okay? And okay. processing that goes on. And the dorsal stream is the parts like the dorsal stream of a, a shark. And that's the part of the brain that goes up across the back and top of your head. And that's involved in, for example, um, spotting a distant target. People who have dorsal stream impairment often have difficulty picking someone out of a crowd and they might have difficulty, for example, with a crowded scene. So if you can imagine looking at a Where's Waldo book, people okay. with dorsal stream impairment would find a Where's Waldo book very difficult or impossible to do because of the crowd, how crowded the scene is. It's, that's, that's what the dorsal stream helps with. The ventral stream of visual processing goes through the middle of the brain, and that's where we have visual recognition. For example, faces, places, objects, biological forms, and environments, um, words, letters, numbers, simple shapes, all of those things. So for those of you out there, we discovered that my son has prosopagnosia, so he has face blindness. He has topographical agnosia, so he has he can't recognize his environments. And what that means is no matter how many times he walks into a room or a place, it doesn't matter how many times he's been there, nothing ever looks familiar. Just like faces never become familiar. They're just, it's just this blur of unrecognizable surroundings and it's useless information. And so he also has object agnosia, which means that he can't recognize objects the way that we do. 
And he also had something called simultanagnosia, which is considered to be a com- used to be considered to be very, very rare, just like prosopagnosia was <laughs> rare. Well, they're discovering more and more that simultanagnosia is actually really, really common too. It's not rare. And for my son, I'm only going to talk about his experience because everybody's experience of their functional vision, as you pointed out, is different. So I will talk about how my son experiences it. That doesn't mean that everybody will be the same. But for my son, what that means is his visual fields are full. And I think most typically sighted people can imagine having tunnel vision because they've heard of that and they know that's like the whole, the visual field is all black and dark. And then in the center, there's a tunnel of acuity through which they can see some stuff. Simultanagnosia, the way my son experiences it, is similar. However, his visual fields are full, but they aren't dark. He can perceive light and color and motion and vague blurry shapes, but it's like being just this enormous blur of color and motion. It's like a fog of just useless information that's colorful but there's nothing recognizable that comes through the fog. And then in the very center, just like in tunnel vision, my son has a teeny tiny little hole in the center about the size of looking through a McDonald's coffee straw. It's very small. He has a tiny little patch of acuity in the center. And through that little patch of acuity, the only things that my son can recognize the way that typically sighted people do are words, letters, numbers, and simple shapes. For him, he's able to recognize those things. And so my son had visual access to numeracy and literacy from a very early age. And in fact, he taught himself to read and write at the age of two and a half and was identified as gifted very early in kindergarten. In fact, his kindergarten teacher created an entirely unique gifted um, pullout program, especially for him, that had never been done before because he was reading so far above where his peers were. In fact, Sebastian actually skipped a grade. He he finished the fourth grade math book, first quarter of third grade um, without any help or coaching. In fact, I didn't even know he'd done it until his gifted teacher came running out of the school building without a coat. And it was like 20 degrees outside and came to tell me, oh, he finished the fourth grade math book, first quarter of third grade, and he needs to skip a grade because we can't meet his educational needs in the level that he's in. And that was a huge shock. And we actually fought the grade promotion for social reasons because Sebastian had a wonderful right in his grade and we didn't pull him away from his friends. However, it turned out to be the least bad of the three options we were given by the school. And so we did end up doing it. Oh, I won't even go into how ridiculous it was. I'm sure we'll get into it one of these days. So, yeah. So we, and it turned out to be a beautifully successful thing for my son. So fortunately for him, it worked because he needed that. And he was actually just dying at school with like nothing. He was never learning anything because, you know, he was, he had already done it all. So long story short, what that, I told you that we would talk about the whole seeing with words. What does that mean to be the only person in the world known to process their vision verbally? So before I talk about that, just to help everybody understand, I'm going to talk about another person who is also alive on this planet right now, who has unique visual processing, and his name is Daniel Kish. Daniel Kish lost both eyes to cancer in infancy, and he taught himself to echolocate. Daniel has no eyes, but he can ride a bike. He's a living person, and he can read He has no eyes, but he can read if the letters are three-dimensional. He can describe scenes, visual scenes of places he's never been to. And he does it by clicking, and then he echolocates. And when they put Daniel into the fMRI, which is a functional magnetic resonance imaging, right? And they're looking at how his brain is functioning. Daniel's visual cortex lights up when he hears echoes, but not when he hears ordinary sounds. So he's quite literally with sound just like a bat or a whale or a dolphin does so he's we see with our brains not with our eyes human beings do not even need to have eyes to see we don't even need them to see so like Daniel Kish my son Sebastian has unique visual processing 
So because the only things that he can recognize are words, letters, numbers, simple shapes. Those are the only things that ever look familiar to him. What my son learned to do is he learned to use this enormous memorized verbal taxonomy of descriptors to guess who and what people and things were. And he is so good at guessing that he appears to be typically sighted. So for example, before I had cataract surgery about 18 months ago, um, I used to wear glasses all the time. And so my characteristics were tall blonde glasses. And when my son thinks those words to himself, he literally gets a momentary flash of what I look like. It's just a glimpse and then it's gone. There's no retention in visual memory. So for example, when I say Mona Lisa, everybody listening just went and had a little flash. Oh, I know Mona Lisa. And you can picture that in your brain if you're neurotypical, right? So my son has no ability to do that for anything other than words, letters, numbers, and simple shapes. So when my son spent six hours in the fMRI for the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity back in March of 2018, they gave him a clicker and they had a computer screen in there with a special, um, they have special things they're using to measure CVI and eye movement and gaze tracking. And they would tell him, okay, so go ahead and see with words. And he would think descriptors as he was doing the activities. And then they would tell him, okay, stop doing that. And he would click to say he had stopped. And so his fMRI scans, you can literally see, my son is actually the only person in the world known to be able to choose to see or not see with his eyes wide open. Because when he's not thinking descriptor words to himself, he has no conscious perception of sight whatsoever. Yeah, and you can see that in the fMRI images because he has his eyes wide open and he's not seeing anything. And then once he starts thinking the descriptor words again, then he's seeing again. So yeah, we had quite a time trying to get a diagnosis for this child. And the sad thing is, although my son has unique visual processing and is sort of a special case here, the reality is the challenges we experienced are common. People who have obvious CVI are misdiagnosed and are told there's nothing wrong with them. And it's really sad. I have a very good friend whose daughter didn't get diagnosed until this past school year at the age of 12. Like my son, she passed for typically sighted. And her vision is actually worse than my son's vision because she does not have visual access to numeracy and literacy. She, the parent is brilliant. The mom is an educator and a musician. She's absolutely brilliant. And the daughter is brilliant as well. She, like my son, is perfectly capable of describing her functional vision now that she knows that it's different. And for everybody listening out there going, how come they didn't tell you that there was something wrong a long time ago? All people who are born with CVI assume that their vision is typical and they assume that you see what they see because they've never seen with the brain that sees neurotypical, neurotypically. So they have nothing to compare their vision to. They don't know there's anything different about their vision. So they can't tell you that there's anything wrong with how they see because they literally don't know. They don't know right. what you see. They can't even you imagine. You don't know what you don't know. You know like they, there's no way of, exactly, right? They can't even imagine that it might be different until they they learn, oh, you this is different, okay. So she didn't know, like my son, like everybody else born with CVI. And so this child and the mom, they're both brilliant, both very intelligent. And the mom has done every single reading intervention strategy for this child under the sun. They've tried everything to help this child learn to read. And what a terrible, brutal battle for self-esteem. Oh. I mean, oh my gosh. I'm so glad that you recognize that because it is so devastating to the human spirit to be told that you just, you know, that you just are incapable, that you just can't do this. And the you're not, I mean, if language is a portal, right, as Brene Brown says, or whatever, it means that, that, you know, by saying that you're just, you're cutting this human off from access to right. the other humans, you know, one of the yes. most, and honestly, human beings die of loneliness all the oh time. It's a very legitimate physiological thing. And when I worked in geriatrics, it was our biggest struggle much of the time is combating senior loneliness and stuff. But 
Oh, we know that. I mean, these children, they're like, oh, you know, there's just something wrong with you. You just can't read. And so therefore you don't get to be fully human with the rest of us. They internalize that, that there's something wrong with them, that they, you know, and, and Fortunately, this child was homeschooled, but many, I, I know other CVIers, adults who were horrifically abused in the educational system, they're told that they're lazy, that they're lying, that they're, you know, they, they get labeled. <laughs> Making it up, right? Yeah, so that they can get out of doing things, yeah. They can't, literally cannot do work that they literally cannot see, and so they get labeled as the bad kid who's defiant. You can see how this becomes this becomes behavior disorders, right? They, they're of labeled course, self-fulfilling prophecies too, right? So if we're going to drill into this kid over and over and over again, how deficient they are and what's wrong with you and all yep. of that, they're going to create a behavioral manual that empowers them to be destructive. Right. When a child literally cannot do the work, then it looks like refusal, right? They're refusing to do work if they would just try harder. Well, trying harder doesn't cure brain damage. It has no <laughs> That we seem to we seem to say that's the answer to everything in this country. We'll just try harder. It'll work out. Trying harder <laughs> does not cure brain damage. And you know what does help? Well, this family that I was talking about with the 12-year-old that just got diagnosed with CVI this past school year started Braille about four months ago and for the very first time is reading at the grade level for the first time. And she's brilliant. Imagine learning Braille in four months and now reading at grade level for the first time after 12, you know, a whole lifetime of being told, you know, of learning yourself. Her mom, of course, never said that she was deficient. Her mom tried everything under the sun, you know, just to try to help her to read. But it's so devastating what happens to these kids. And this is a vision impairment. It's not an intellectual disability. It is not intellectual. These kids need services for blind blind. I don't know how else to say it. My son's well, blind. <laughs> you know, it's it's so interesting to me. I think that, you know, and again, listen, I'm not a parent. So like, you know, obviously I can only, you know, guess around a lot of these uh, feelings and sensations and things, but, you know, I got it so in. You're I'm a sorry. dog mom. I know yeah, you. Yeah, I'm a dog mom. <laughs> Right, I'm a dog mom. We, I was a dog mom too. They're just like kids. We love them just as he, much. He definitely runs the show around here. <laughs> He's no napping dog. right now, but I'm sure he'll make an appearance when he's ready. <laughs> um, well, what I found so interesting is, is that now, granted, I get that to be a parent, and I'm sure especially to be a mother, is to live in some level of fear at all time, <laughs> right? But I found it so interesting that, I mean, perhaps you never would have gotten this diagnosis or even thought to go anywhere from that couch with that photo album had you gone to a place of fear. Because you said you weren't scared at first. You were almost coming from a place of more curiosity, right? And you didn't even know what was fully wrong yet. It was so to speak wrong, right? Yeah. And it's so blindness did not freak me out. I mean I was I was freaked out, yes, but not afraid. It was more like, oh, that's unusual. You know, I didn't know it was and so then you came at it from more curiosity than the, from the next day when we discovered he was navigating by counting his steps and turns, I will admit I was terrified for my son's <gasps> and there's actual research that shows that parents of blind parents in general would rather have their child have a fatal form of disease than be blind neurotypical, neurotypical sighted people are so afraid of blindness and being afraid. They're just so afraid of the idea of not being able to see that they actually, there's research showing that they would prefer their child have some kind of fatal illness, like fatal cancer over being blind. And that's so tragic because I mean, I have been so blessed to become a member of the blindness, low vision community. I know so many incredible blind people who are out there living their lives successfully, having a great time. They are academically successful. They are, you know, they're just successful in every aspect of life. There's no difference. 
you know, and so it's just maybe, so maybe they're happier than a lot of people that can, you know, see in a, in a typical way. And, you know, that's kind of what I was getting at, too. I mean, it, I think the way that we frame um, any kind of condition or experience that isn't similar to ours in a way that's scary so that it makes it so much harder for uh, us to appreciate the beauty of the situation. Right. right. I mean, not not to take anything away, but is your son not beautifully gifted with his, I mean, he's an artist, right? So like, let's, so talk about, talk about Sebastian's art and what he creates from this, from this experience. Well, so first I wanted to go back and just say, I want to be completely and totally honest with everybody that once we figured out that Sebastian was navigating by counting his steps and turns and was literally lost in this world, then I was unashamed I'm unashamed to say I was terrified for his safety. I and was, of course, absolutely. of course, who wouldn't be on the bathroom floor as a mother in that moment going, what is my world? <laughs> what just um, happened? How, how is this kid ever going to be able to live independently? I mean, that was exactly. Well, right. And you said he's 15, right? So in this point, let's be honest, you know, you're thinking, all right, I got a couple of years until he's off to college. And then, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, life starts again. <laughs> a little bit. Well, and it was more just terror and grief for him because he wanted to go off to college. He had plans. Of course. You He's know. getting ready to take driver's ed, like you said, right? Like it's all the exciting stuff is supposed to be happening at this point. What kind of car we were going to buy him. We were having these discussions, you know, and it was just, we literally almost enrolled him in driver's ed and he can never drive. So I just wanted to make sure everybody understood that it was absolutely terrifying when we didn't know like if he could ever live independently. And I have so much compassion for every family that is right now in that situation of like, I don't know how my kids, what's going to happen to my kid when they're an adult, what's going to happen to my child once I'm gone, right? This is, it's terrifying and it's huge. So I just want to make sure I, I said that out, you know, so everybody got that. But to get back to your question about his art, so Sebastian, he's, he is quite an artist and he's always been interested in all kinds of art, both 2D and 3D. And he has enjoyed ceramics and painting and drawing, bookbinding, large scale sculpture and <laughs> all kinds of things that he likes. However, um, he actually, so when Sebastian was in high school, because he's so good with this verbal visual processing thing that he did, he took art history. And even though he has almost no visual memory, he got a five on the AP art history exam. He's absolutely brilliant. And I have no idea how he did it, but he can tell just from the, the colors and the types of brush strokes who the artists are. So he got a five, okay. the highest score, and he got the presidential award and scholarship to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, which is um, the best scholarship that they give. And he, um, he absolutely loved it there. He had a fabulous time. And then the pandemic struck. <laughs> and so he decided to take a year off because like online ceramics doesn't work super well. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that one doesn't doesn't really translate so well. Yeah. <laughs> so online art school was not it's really hard. So he took a year off after the pandemic hit and he actually took a um he made a connection with the science professor and he um actually was got an internship doing um I, it's hard to describe, but it was, he actually co-authored a paper on the ontology, that's with the T, not with C, ontology of virology related to the pandemic. And so he got really hooked into this whole idea of ontology, which is how you categorize things, which is basically what Sebastian does. It's how he sees by categorizing things. With, with words, you know. Brilliant. I was wondering that when you, the more and more you described it and like what he did with the art history class, yeah. I was like, I was wondering to myself, like he must develop some kind of pattern or system within within himself in order to be able to do this. Yeah. It's, he, it's, wow. He basically, he, he has memorized how we describe how things look. Right. So okay. Like, okay. Okay. That makes sense to me. Yeah. 
he, he doesn't see them based on how, like with visual memory, he has just a, a huge, enormous list of like how we describe how things look. And then he thinks those words and then boom, he gets just a flash of understanding and then it's gone. So yeah, so he, he uses that for his vision. But anyway, he, long story short, he's gotten away from the art because he's more interested in this whole field of ontology, which is really kind of a STEM, STEAM career thing. So he's changed schools, which I'm not gonna talk about here for his own privacy. But um, he is still creating. Sebastian actually is a, um, he, he writes for the Lair magazine, which is an online Dungeons and Dragons magazine. And they, Very cool. they commission adventures from him. So he's actually a paid contributor. Oh, that is so cool. Okay, so <laughs> all right. um, our, our audience is not exactly like key demographic of D&D or Dungeons and Dragons or whatever, <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> it definitely picked up a lot of traffic during the pandemic. Um, and I'll listen, I'll get real honest with you. There was a day Dan and I went to Walmart looking for like a cheap at home date night. And we'd like to go to the game aisle and pick out a new board game or puzzle or something like that. And we stood there and looked and looked and looked like you would have in a video store in the nineties. And uh, <laughs> we just said, all right, you know, you want to try this, this Dungeons and Dragons? the dungeon master for his group of friends it is a storytelling activity and so he is he's producing just tons of story content and he's just writing just thousands and thousands of words of story content and so he's still creative he's just he's just kind of had a switch in what he's doing and so I'm I really love it though you know I mean so I actually we were just talking I want to say it was yesterday or whatever uh based on like what I'm recording we're recording but um just had a podcast episode where we were talking about creativity and like I've been sharing all these different strategies we can use and I was talking about how important it is to pursue things like sci-fi categories or anything with more whimsy and, and anything like that especially if you wouldn't normally do it because it can be hugely <laughs> developmental for your creative skills and for thinking outside of the box and just experiencing new things. So if anybody's listening right now and they're like completely trying to blow off the idea of Dungeons and Dragons, if you want to further develop your storytelling skills, that is a rabbit hole I will fully endorse you going down. <laughs> all about it's about it's it's about group storytelling you know and so I'm really thrilled for him that he's found he's got this outlet of creativity while he pursues this different career path that he's very passionate about so it's all good so I wanted to just circle back for all your listeners because um, I think pretty much everybody probably knows someone who may have CVI <laughs> it is so common yeah, yeah one in 30 apparently right <laughs> so yeah. So I just wanted to give some resources for your listeners. If you're listening to this story and going, oh, wow, my nephew, I never thought that that autism diagnosis quite fit him. There was always something weird about the way he was, you know, interacting visually with his world or whatever it is, there are resources. And I just want to get back to that. So if you want more information about CVI, one of the best sources of factual and medically correct information about CVI is free and it's at www.cviscotland.org and I'll put a link to that in the show notes and they have actual videos about what it's like to look through the eyes of someone who has CVI. Everyone who has CVI is unique and so if you watch one video don't think that that's going to be how it is for everyone because depending on where your brain damage is 
everybody who has CVI has a different experience with their vision. So, but they have lots of different videos so you can get an idea of what it's like to have lower visual field loss, for example, which is a very common symptom of CVI or simultanagnosia, which again, my son has, which is a very common symptom. So there's videos, there's tons of factual information and it's very parent friendly. It's very easy to understand for someone who's not a professional. So that's a great resource. And another fabulous resource is the Perkins School for the Blind. They have actual classes that you can take both for professionals, um, teachers of the visually impaired, and also you know, occupational therapists, anybody who needs to know more about this disability. So Perkins is a great place to go as well. And I'll put a link for that too. Thank you so much. That's very, very important. And I, I knew that we had listeners out there this whole time that have been going, oh my gosh, <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> what I also no, I wanted to take a moment to thank Perkins because just this past summer, they hosted the Perkins CVI Collaboration for Change Conference, and they had Dr. Michael Chang as the keynote speaker. Dr. Chang is the director of the National Eye Institute, which is a division of the National Institute of Health. And so for the very first time this past year, the NIH has actually recognized CVI as the number one cause of visual impairment in the developed world. That's huge. So the NIH is involved now, and they have also recognized CVI as an area of interest, which means that CVI for the very first time qualifies for federal research funding dollars. So we've made huge, huge gains in understanding that CVI is not rare. It is not some fake thing that no one ever has ever heard of. It's a real and serious, serious condition, and it is often debilitating, and it's common. So I'm really glad to be here. And I'm really so grateful to you, Sarah, for having me on your podcast and to give me this opportunity to help reach out to different people because I know there's so many people out there that are undiagnosed and I so appreciate this. Thank you. Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> I keep, uh, you keep thanking me. Um, the, the honor has really been all mine. Um, when we first met and I got even the first little few pieces of your story, I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I was so completely floored by your story and your experience. And when I realized the unbelievable um, layers of, you know, vision and creativity and perspective and all of these things that are tied up into it and being able to recognize, um, you know, the light in the darkness, <laughs> so to speak, and, and having well, the courage to pursue that the way you did. And I just wanted to mention, when you talk about creativity, my son quite literally taught himself to see with art. He literally memorized all of the verbal characteristics of everything and everyone he encountered in daily life as a toddler by drawing, painting, and sculpting them. He spent hours every day coloring and drawing and painting and sculpting and you know everything. And that's how he memorized it all. And he literally created a neuroplastic change in his brain that allows him to see with words through art. And so creativity is so important and art and music, they are so important. And I didn't even talk about the music aspect. The we'll have you back and we'll, we'll totally, we're gonna have you back all this time. <laughs> as as oh my gosh, I would love it. So thank yeah, you. because uh, you're, you know, you're a very gifted music teacher. You've got all kinds of creative talents that we have to dive into, but I wanted to at least set the stage for everyone and helping them to understand uh, that there are all kinds of discoveries and breakthroughs that we can have as people when we just give ourselves the permission to pursue life from a place of curiosity, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, remember, and remembering that perspective is unique. Yeah, that's a great way to, to put it. Perspective is unique. And to honor that, you know, um, and and so much of what your struggle was is that those doctors were incapable, at least at that time, of recognizing that, of, of understanding that their experience and their reality wasn't the black and white end all be all, <laughs> right? And so anytime that we can challenge ourselves to step out of, out 
of our experience. It's great to tap into our experiences for creativity, but it's also really, really valuable to try to push ourselves to step outside of what we're experiencing in order to ask ourselves what else could there be and then make incredible discoveries, whether it be medical discoveries, uh, life-changing discoveries, like what you did with your son. I mean, aside from the medical progress that you've brought forth already, the doors and the, the mental peace that you've brought parents and I just, I, hmm. <laughs> Stephanie, your work is incredible. Um, and, and uh, you know, none of it really would have been possible if you had not cultivated such a strong grip on the light in, in many periods of darkness, none of which I'll quiz you about now. I think uh, you've got an infinite number of stories about how to grasp onto that light in dark moments and, and use it to see you through. And uh, you are an absolute inspiration that it's been an honor to meet, much less interview more than once now. And I, I just, I'm, I can't believe we're so lucky to have you part of this community. Thank you so much. Well, you're very, very kind and I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you for providing the platform. How do you feel, sister? Have you had any shifts? Don't forget, the conversation really continues and heats up inside the Wildly Creative Women Facebook group. And I would love to tackle any questions you have about today's show in there, alongside the growing sisterhood of wildly creative women supporting one another and sharing their stories of triumph and tragedy through their creative pursuits. If you have taken anything at all out of today's episode, it would mean the world to me to have you subscribe, like, and share. I love you so much for being here, and I'll talk to you soon.